Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Warlord Games official podcast. My name is Brad, and I am the host of this show. And one of the things that I absolutely love about doing the Warlord cast is that I get to talk to some of the best guests. And this man is one that I talked to a couple of months ago with the re-release of Black Powder Volume 2. And it's not every day that you literally get to talk to one of your childhood heroes. Um, And I know that he's probably in the background rolling his eyes when I say that. But Rick Priestley is one of the absolute greats of the gaming industry and has, has been part of some of the greatest gaming projects literally that have ever existed. Warhammer 40,000, Bolt Action, Black Powder, uh, Gates of Antares, you name it. He's been part of tons of games. Warmaster, I mean, I can probably list games for days. But today is a really special day because not only do I get to talk to the man, the myth, the legend himself, Rick, we get to talk to Rick about his newest game, the newest game in the pantheon of Rick. And it is a corker of a game. And of course, I'm talking about Warlords of Erewhon, but let's not hear me talk about it. Let's hear the man himself. Rick, welcome back to the Warlord cast. How are you today? Uh, hi, Brad. I'm great. Thank you very much for the introduction. <laughs> it's, may, I, I know it's always awkward when it's like, well, I'm going to do that thing again, Rick. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's very nice. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's yeah, talk. No, all good. Now, you and I um, both love old school fantasy. We both love fantasy games. And you have made a new one. Um, before we really get into sort of the history of the game itself, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with fantasy gaming in general? Because we talked a fair bit about historical gaming when you were on for Black Powder and maybe sure. gaming in general. But why don't you tell us a little bit about your love of fantasy? Because I know it's one you got. Yeah, yeah well, it, it, it goes right back to when I started um, wargaming, really, because... Um, in the uh, uh, very early 70s, I mean, the Lord of the Rings was very big. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was uh, it was on standard reading list for uh, all old young teenagers and uh, young adults even. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it, it's sort of rooted in there. And I think uh, I started collecting fantasy figures as soon as they became available. In fact, we, we even started designing games for... Um, around the Lord of the Rings, you know, mm-hmm. inspired by the Lord of the Rings, before you could get models for them, you know, using conventional models from uh, historical subjects. That's right, because uh, so, uh, didn't Games yeah. Workshop have the original miniature license? Maybe they had the second license. Oh, it, it's way before Games Workshop existed. Yeah. Oh, exactly, which uh, is why you couldn't oh, buy yeah. their models. <laughs> no, the very first uh, models you could get in the UK um, were, were by minifigs. Oh, nice. Figurines Limited. Mm-hmm. And they were, um, they were, they were called the Middle Earth range or ME range originally. Uh, and I think they got a snotty letter and changed the name to Mythical Earth. Ah, nice. But it was a pseudo Lord of the Rings range. Uh, and um, that would be, what, 72, something like that. So it was good for you. I think Games Workshop was founded in 75, mm-hmm. but it really was a, an import business, you know, it, it, they didn't start uh, miniatures until a bit later. Yeah, um, so uh, really, it, it, it kind of predates D&D and all that sort of thing, mm. uh, my interest in fantasy. Um, 
And in the seventies, they re-released a lot of um, classic fantasy fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert E. Howard, for example, mm-hmm. Fritz Leiber, uh, and uh, so the Conan books um, became available, and we just went through all those. And I think fantasy and science fiction were both quite, you know, they were both quite popular genres mm-hmm. at the time. I mean, they are still, but it. it, it it has much more focus then. Uh, we probably went through everything Michael Moorcock wrote, mm-hmm. uh, for example. Mm-hmm. And those, those things are very be, were very influential on um, uh, what we did for uh, for War, Warhammer later, mm-hmm. uh, as you might imagine. Absolutely. So yeah, that's when it all started. Um, and, and of course, we had there were no fantasy war games rules until later, so we made our own up. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's just one of those things, you know. You, you, you kind of just did it. It wasn't, it, we never thought we were doing anything particularly special. People just did their own rules in those days. And, uh, we actually, a friend of mine, Richard Halliwell, who, who later worked for games workshop and worked on Warhammer with me. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we wrote and published a set of rules when we were about 18, I think 18, 19, um, really? called Reaper. Yeah. That was the first thing we got, we had published. Uh, as, as books, I think we'd both written for um, fanzines before then, but um, that was the first thing both of us had published, and we tended to work together as a team. Uh, and uh, uh, I think we then shortly after did a science fiction game called Combat Three Thousand. Heard of that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and then we both started working for Games Workshop. Who uh, it was? Cit- it was Citadel Miniatures actually. It opened up in Newark, which is near us. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and they were making figures for D and D, really. Yeah. Right. So, uh, uh, and we both kind of fell in with the toy soldier industry. Yeah. And we're doomed, doomed thereafter. Yeah, I was gonna say you've been trapped there ever since. Yeah, been trying to get out, but hey, <laughs> but you can't st- stop it. Exactly. It's like that scene from The Godfather. You try and get out, and they keep dragging you back in. You're dragging you back. Now, I think I see it with this fantasy game. It's dragging me back, really, because fantasy is, is. I say it wasn't exactly my first love, but it was a very early one, and. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just uh, thought that the Antares game system uh, was worth pursuing mm. in a different jo- uh, with a fantasy genre. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and I, I just it just seemed felt natural to do it. And having played that game, the Antares game, for a long, quite a long time now, quite a few years, I'd sort of got a good measure of it. Um, and uh, you know how it is with sometimes sometimes the game systems you you develop them with one kind of direction of travel in mind, but once players get hold of things, the direction of travel changes a bit, mm-hmm. uh, and that happened a lot with Antares. So what I'd envisaged to be a small scale skirmish narrative game has become much more of a, uh, a kind of armyless driven um, mm-hmm. combat game, really. Uh, and uh, with Antares, um, that, that that's meant that some things I I designed for it have become um, kind of fallen by the wayside a bit. And some of the mechanics were um, uh, overemphasized in some areas where they're no longer all that important. Mm. Uh, so having got the measure of it, as it were, I, I I thought, well, you know, I could do things with this in a fantasy environment, and uh, hence uh, uh, Erewhon. That's awesome. There you go. Short, that's the long and the short of it. Yeah, well, hey, that's a that's a great story. Now we've 
We've been hearing tidbits, literally, Paul Sawyer started mentioning just you in passing and this this set of rules. And he just kept dropping these little tidbits that, you know, ask him what hobby he'd been up to. He said he was working on his beastmen again. And, you know, you'd give him that look through the Skype and say, those are Games Workshop models and you were for Warlord now. Why are you back to painting that? And Rick's working on a thing. And over the months, this, I mean, little snippets of this have started to come out. And then, of course, in recent months, we've actually gotten full press releases and art and write-ups of what army lists are included in the game and, you know, some of the mechanics. And, of course, you've started doing interviews. Uh, and, yeah, it's just that the momentum has grown and grown and quite a few people down in Australia at least um, the people in my neck of the woods we are really excited for this game and um, I know a lot of people have been waiting by the post box because the mail takes a while to get to Australia and uh, the yeah, Europeans so the Europeans have it <laughs> oh, we shake our fists at you but um, I got my copy thankfully and was able to play and while I was excited about the game it wasn't until I played it and I think we talked about that off air quite a bit um, that I was completely blown away. So, Rick, let's let's stop talking about me again. So, and go back to this game. Now, this is fascinating because you have written this game and every other game system that I have ever played, when you open the book, um, you get fluff, you get background, you get history, you get a world, you get something that immerses you in it. Um, something that, some place where your game takes place. Um, and what you get when you open this book is something completely different. You get author notes. Um, you actually explain what, uh, you know, Erewhon is. You Not even as a world. You explain it as a rule set. And sort of yeah, your love of really, isn't it? It is. It's sort of a statement of concept. But what I love is then... You do get some nice, you know, little stories in the middle to sort of, you know, narrate some of the mechanics of the game. But when you get to the army lists, again, you get a statement of content before every army. And it's not, you know, orcs live in the mountains. It's if you go back to Tolkien or you go and you really talk about, you know, that particular army list as almost its own genre, um, which I have yeah. never seen in a game. What took you down that path? Because it's it's fascinating. It's like you've given us the rules, but said, now add what you want to it. Sure. But I've always had that kind of attitude to um, uh, both fantasy and historical gaming, really. I mean, um, I, I always felt that you know, players don't strip. They shouldn't need things like army lists, really. Mm. And um, uh, it, it's a... It's a it's a different kind of gaming um, that uh, uh, people. I've always enjoyed the here's a, here's a broad concept. Go off and do your own thing. Mm. Uh, make you up, add your own narratives, and um, uh, you, you know, D and D always used to say, you know, the only thing you need to add is imagination, and that was true. Sadly, they couldn't sell imagination, so they started to sell rule books. And D and D stopped being about imagination and adding your own content and uh, creating worlds and being your own author in a way, and started to become a uh, an organisation where you just consumed the pre-written scenarios and adventures and so on and so forth. Mm. And it became very became very rulesy, uh, and um, I thought that was a shame because the concept of D and D was entirely simple and mm. entirely do it yourself. Uh, the very first version. Uh, 
And I, I, I've always felt that uh, fantasy as a genre should have an element of that. I mean, even before D&D existed, I always felt that that was the case, you know. And um, with Erewhon, I, I, I wanted to, I was inspired by the mechanic behind Antares and behind the bolt action to some mm -hmm. extent, but really it is the Antares system, which is D10 based, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, right, I'm going to write a fantasy game. And everyone, everyone said, "Oh, what's the world like?" And you know, I, I do quite enjoy building worlds, mm. and I think it's something I've got a good handle on, and you know, I certainly do. You do, but, yes. But I look at all these fantasy skirmish games that are out there at the moment, and they're all set in their own world, and you know, none of them, none of them catch fire, because there's only one real background that people have a strong, the massive get fantasy gamers have mm -hmm. a strong relationship with, and that's the Warhammer world. Almost all fantasy gamers that I know of understand and have some kind of hook into the Warhammer world because they either started there or they've played there or they've at some point been part of that gaming group. Mm -hmm. um, and that means that really all these other guys who are trying to create something that's not Warhammer, don't, it doesn't quite work. It's a hard act to follow. It, it doesn't quite work. It, it, yeah, I mean, I spent... 20 years or more doing that um and we pursued strong commercial lines when we did it so things that sold we built upon um which means that things that has that came to be you know in the 1990s and 2000s um were had a great deal of strength to them and uh you can't easily redefine those things so I thought it was a bit of a waste of time. I, I did have a bit of a think about it, and I did have a bit of a think about that. But in the end, I decided it, it wasn't worth it because all I'd do is create goblins that weren't goblins. You right. know, sort of, goblins are blue men with four four arms, sort of mm -hmm. thing. And yeah, it doesn't work. People are not that interested. Um, and unless you can actually support it with a beautiful range of individualized models. What's the point? And I knew nobody was going to be doing that. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, I had these huge collections of models going back years and years mm -hmm. um, that were all based on traditional fantasy subjects. So you know, my, my goblins, my, my uh, elves, um, I, 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 things like that, barbarians and quite a lot of some chaos stuff as well, mm -hmm. um, and so on. And um, in the end, I thought, you know, really, I just want to write a game that supports playing with some of these uh, forces that I've already got, and which I know everyone's already got. Um, I mean, I know we all like the opportunity to collect something new, and I've done that as well a little mm -hmm. bit. Uh, but um, I thought there was just a certain amount of strength in just going back and just refreshing all those old ideas. So that's what the, drove me down that direction. Oh, that's fantastic. So there is no world for Era 1. Era 1 is every world. It's your, it, the idea is... It's your uh, it's your own opportunity to create a fancy world, or simply take one off the off the shelf if you like. The Warhammer world being one example, mm -hmm. but it could be the world of Conan, or it could be any fantasy uh, environment that exists in fiction or media or TV, or just make something up. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's yours to do with what you want. Um, but I thought that there were so many classic images. So elves come from. 
a kind of background that's based on something like um, Lord Dunsany, Tolkien, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the Irish mythology, the Shi, all, all that sort of thing. That's where the elves are. In, in uh, Elric, the Elric stories, the Melnibonians are effectively derived from the same source. They're kind of derived from Shi, or they're, they're sort of elves, although they're, they're never referred to as such. Um, so, yeah, no, there's, there's, there are classic images behind all of these things. Uh, and I, all I did was really just give them a bit of a, a refresh. The, um, I mean, it's, it's to some extent, the uh, the ideas that I picked up on are ones that um, we developed uh, at Games Workshop. I mean, I, I wanted to make provision for people to use models that they already had. Mm. And that means, to some extent, there are things in there that people will have because they've got, say, Orc armies or goblin armies or dwarf armies or whatever. Um, so I'll let the models dictate the uh, the character, uh, and I think I think it works all right. I think it definitely does. And as someone who has, like you, uh, a, a a very old collection of fantasy models, um, I opened the book and I started reading, and then I immediately went to my closet and started opening figure cases and pulling out models. Uh, I pulled out an ogre model that literally was one of the first models I ever bought 35 years ago, 30 years ago. Yeah. And um, I put it on Facebook and you po- and you said, oh, no, that's the perfect size. Because I thought it w- old, old models, it was so long ago, they would be out of scale. And you went, nope, that's the perfect size. That's a great model. I'm glad you put that yeah. up. And you went, do, do you know yeah. yeah, it is. I mean, I, I actually don't like figures to be too big. Mm. Games Workshop in its current incarnation likes figures to be big they because they yeah. can they, they can cut well basically they can sell them for a lot of money mm-hmm. um if they they, they realize that they made so much this is when i was there even we realized we made so much money out of the uh, the 40k vehicle kits that what they did is they deliberately engineered the warhammer game to accommodate very large uh, models that really replicated mm-hmm. what um 40k vehicles were in a fantasy environment and i just thought that was putting the cart before the horse yeah. it, it, you know it's, it's just it's just wrong and when you when you're gaming on a table and most people don't have a table bigger than say four feet by six feet mm. which is quite small really but you know most people don't have a, access to tables bigger than that right. and the minute you put down a model that's a foot high you know it it, it just destroys any sense of reality Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I actually prefer uh, models to be a little bit smaller myself. It's, um, but you know, it, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, whatever size models you've got, it, whatever size bases they're upon, mm-hmm. they do work with the game. Exactly. Uh, I I designed it that way. Yeah. Well, okay. You've brought up several points, and I'm going to knock them out with you one by one here. Number one, on, <laughs> some of the things I've been asked since I've been posting things about this game recently are the bases. And I think that's one of the things that makes this game so special. Um, Games Workshop has gone out and said, if you want to take our old fantasy models and play Age of Sigmar, for example, you have to put them on rounds. And Kings of War has said, oh yeah, and Kings of War has said, you have to put them on, you know, squares, rectangles, or multi-bases. What you've said in the beginning of your game is, as long as the base reasonably fits the model, and you've given some very clear parameters on that, you can play yep. rounds, you can play squares. So if someone like myself has a collection that's half on rounds, half on squares, it doesn't matter, right? 
Yeah, that's right. I, I, and when I started playing and in, inviting other people to play, some people were bringing models that were relatively new, and they're all based on rounds, usually 25 or just over 25 up to 30 mil across. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're modern figures. But um, Nick Simerson brought his old Warhammer um, Undead, and we used that as the Undead army that we, we used for playtesting. Mm-hmm. And that's all based on the contemporary 1990s uh, square bases, or oblong bases, mm-hmm. which are often t- they're mostly 20 by 20s, uh, cavalry on 25 mils. So we had to accommodate all that, and it really just didn't make any difference. Right. Um, strictly speaking, you know, if you took a, a, a small model and put it on a, a, a base the size of a dinner plate, you'd be in trouble. Right. But within reason, <laughs> exactly. uh, uh, you can use any size base you like. And um, for the bigger models in particular, uh, I, I don't even put them on a base. Uh, if they've got a base, that's fine. But if they don't, I don't see the need. I usually measure to the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's um, the point is you just need something to measure to. Exactly. And to measure from when moving, which, you know, yeah. again, is explained beautifully in the rules. Now, the next thing that I was going to bring up is just that joy of opening the book and saying, I have that army. I have that army. I have that army. I know where I can get that army. Um, you have included um, quite a few army lists in there that are just the classic tropes. So you have your yep. orcs, you have your goblins, you have your dwarves, you have your barbarians, you have knights, um, you have undead, which you know is tends to be your more um, you know skeletons, whites, wraiths, that that yeah. side of things. Um, you it's also kind of a have, classic, classic undead army. Yeah, it is. Um, and you have an elf list that sort of covers all fla- flavors of elves. Um, yes. And, and your lists are very inclusive. And then yet, you have then included some genres that start to get a little left of field that some people went, I'm sorry, that what's in the rules? So let's talk about why are gnolls in the rules, Rick? Because I've been asked to ask you that question. Because I bought some. There you go. Uh, uh, the... Um... Uh, North Star and mm-hmm. Osprey combined to produce a range of plastic uh, fantasy figures for their Frostgrave game. Mm-hmm. And the I think the Nolds might have even been the first ones they did. And I I looked at those and I thought, actually, they're, they're quite interesting models. Mm-hmm. And um, I just bought a couple of boxes. And I had some good fun sticking them together and painting them up. And uh, it's one of the things that sort of got me it inspired me really to play the um, uh, to create the Erewhon game, uh, and there's enough in a couple of boxes from North Star to um, make what effectively is that army that that warband because mm-hmm. there's lots of weapon variations um, uh, in the uh, in the in set, and I even made my warlord and my um, shaman from the set just a little bit of simple converting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that's why there's nulls in there. Um, what what happened was when I when I told the Warlord guys that I was working on this, um, I have an arrangement with Warlord. That basically, if I do something, uh, in, if, I, if I have a new game or something I want to do, they have first refusal, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, entirely uh, entirely right. And um, so I said to them, uh, you know, I'm working on this fancy variation of Antares. And they all said, oh, no, we don't want that. So, Can you do a fancy version of, um, of uh, Hail Caesar, a.k.a. Hail Frodo? Um <laughs> And uh, uh, and I said, well, you know, I'm kind of doing this uh, fancy version of Antares, you know, and um, 
it, it's uh, it didn't have a name at the time. I, mm-hmm. I, I kind of uh, uh, I, I provisionally was calling it um, Beyond the Pillars of Hercules because it's Beyond the Gates of Antares Fantor- uh, nice. becomes Beyond the Pillars of Hercules. But um, uh, they said, ah, we don't, we're not interested in that. So I'd actually started to lay it all out into uh, Adobe InDesign with a view to just publishing it myself or putting it up on the web mm-hmm. uh, as a freebie. Uh, and um, I just did the army lists that everyone I was playing or inviting to play or uh, who expressed an interest. Mm-hmm. I just did the army lists for those people. So the reason the army lists are the army lists is because those are all either armies or forces that we I should call them. War, they're really warband lists. They're not, not full armies. Only. Yeah, that's but yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, the reason I did the list that I did was because those are the forces that people had or wanted to play or asked me for. Uh, and originally, I intended those to be separate PDFs that you would then just be be able to access through the uh, website. Mm-hmm. So originally, the reason why there's so many and there are the ones there are is because the way the game was constructed. It wasn't until um, I've been playing a little for a good while. Uh, and a few people who I know in the industry said to me, you know, you ought to publish this. And I said, well, Warlord don't want it. And immediately that got round. I got any number of offers to publish it. So I went back to Warlord and said, yeah, I've had lots of offers to publish it. And, you know, so, you know, I'm going to publish it unless you want it because you get first refusal. Mm-hmm. At that point, they decided that they would publish it. And, um, uh, just, just dived in, so I never intended that all these army lists, all these lists, would go into the a book. Mm-hmm. I, I just did lists, yeah. um, and that's why there are so many, and that's why there are the ones that are. Well, it's interesting because there are. I mean, that makes sense when you say it that way because each and every army list within the book is very self inclusive. It it feels as though sure. it's its own army book, so to say. And each one's about 10 pages. So it makes sense that each was its own PDF. Um, as you say, with its own designer yeah. notes at the beginning. Um, and then it has everything. And then what I really like about it is at the last page of every army list, or the last two pages, depending of, there is a there is a weapon summary page and a special yeah. rules page, which makes when you're picking up the game incredibly Helpful well, and again, easy, right? That's, exactly, that's because I, I did them as PDFs. Mm-hmm. So let's imagine you know, I'm going to play around. I've got my war game set up, and somebody's coming around to play, and they're going to bring their undead. But they've not played before, or they've only played a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I, I just print out the PDF. The PDF's got the entire army list on with the stats and the summary at the back. So when they're playing, they've got the summary in front of them. Exactly. So that's why it, 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 when, when I gave it to Warlord, I said, well, you don't really need to print these summaries because, you know, I only did those for like playtesting, really. And they said, oh, no, I think we'll print those as well. And I'm glad they did, really, because yeah, it, it does uh, give you that. But ideally, all those army lists should also be available as PDFs online. Because hmm. then you can print. Yep. Go ahead. And you've got them in front of you. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess. Rather than having this book. Well, I, okay, we should talk about the rest of them. We should finish the, the class role. So we have, of course, barbarians, dwarves, elves, gnolls, goblins, orcs, knights. Yep. Now, those were yep. undead. We talked about those. Yep. Um, beastmen, also a, a classic that's in there. A, again, includes both GW and non-GW models. Um, and then we move sure. on to halflings and Olympians, which are fantastic. Yep. Um and then you've added a last list. 
Um, Rick, why don't you tell us what is the last list? Because it the is, list. yeah, it, it tells, sorry, I think I, the Skype may have cut out about the same time I was saying something. So tell us what is that list and why is that so cool? Well, Brad, that list is the monsters list. Yes. Uh, and it's, uh, I don't know, I, I, it's, I don't know about cool. It's, um, uh, I, I thought, well, oh, the warbands are basically infantry. Some of them have cavalry, but the cavalry are not mm-hmm. a big part of the game. It's really an infantry game. It is. It's a warband game. Um, the minute you go, let's play with a dragon or a hippogriff or some vast giant or something like that, you're starting to go beyond the scope of the mm-hmm. game. And uh, uh, But people want those things. So I just put them all in a list at the end with their own points value. And they have three points values because they can be um, uh, they can be bound monsters, mm-hmm. which basically behave themselves, or they can be wild monsters, which uh, are a, a little bit more out of control. Um, and uh, or they can be what's the other one? They can be they can be allied monsters. Mm-hmm. So um, you've got a, a, a three three variations, and they're three points costs. So the wild ones are the cheapest, the bound mm-hmm. ones are the next cheapest, and the allied ones are the most expensive uh, and the most reliable. Uh, so, so if you agree with your opponent that you want to use these monsters, you can use them. They can include them, but um, it's definitely on that basis. So, uh, uh, really, if you prefer to play a, a slightly um, more, um, a, I say constricted, that's not right. If, if you want to play the game really as it was conceived, where it's um, small warbands adventuring, trying to capture things or maybe fight each other or, or to, you know, compete to control a, a fort or a bridge or something like that. You, you're probably going to use the warband lists right. as I uh, uh, as I conceive them, but if you want to introduce something a little bit more exciting, ah, uh, I'm going to have a Tyrannosaurus Rex in my force, and oh, you yeah. can. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> then, then, yep, go ahead, do it. And I've just given stats for those things. Uh, and really, I I drew the line uh, really about it's about four pages for uh, one two. Three, four, five, six, about ten, actually. Yeah, I was going to say, there's <laughs> but, a lot of pages, right? I was going to say, there's a lot more yeah. than four, yeah. Um, yeah, well, because when I did my original layouts, they were a bit tighter. Because mm-hmm. uh, uh, I'm more concerned about printing paper, you see. Yes. Uh, but um, I just included all the classic monsters, um, as well as things like giant spiders and scorpions, which is to say classic D&D monsters, mm-hmm. giant rats. Uh, and then I, I put in a few dinosaurs because, um, you know, uh, there are some nice ones available these days. Yeah. And people often say to me, you know, where can you get um, – I put a giant mammoth into the barbarian list for the folks who want it because mm-hmm. I've got one actually. <laughs> uh, and they say to me, you know, where do you get th- those things? You know, so they, they, you can buy resin mammoths and things like that. And they're quite expensive. Mm-hmm. But I think some of some of the children's toys they do these days are just so good. Yep. The dinosaur models are just so good. Yeah, why wouldn't you just use one of those? Yes. As a primary school teacher, some of the toys that the kids bring to school, I absolutely eye up. And I have, on more than one occasion, turned to a kid and said, so where did you get that? Um, (laughs) (laughs) At which point they are eternally bemused. But I really do love that um, you've included the smaller monsters. I know you've said that some of the bigger monsters, and you say it in the designer notes for the game, like dragons and the giants, can you know really blow out the scale 
a little bit. I mean, they're fun and they're great additions. But when you start adding things like ghouls or, you know, maybe a slightly larger than infantry model like an ogre or, as you say, the giant spiders or, you know, rat swarms, you've added a whole level of um, monster that that really makes narrative play uh You've given people the tools to go play in the sandbox, so to speak, um, which is really sure, exciting. Yeah, yeah that, that's kind of where I was going with it, really. I mean, um, it, it's it's a very adaptable system, and I just wanted to illustrate how you could easily take the basic stats and rules and create things like hippogriffs and hydras. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you say, swarms. I, mean, I, I put a whole batch of swarms in. Yeah, you did. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, going right down to what's the smallest thing? It could be a spider swarm or possibly a bee swarm. Yeah, I was looking at that a minute ago. Um, but I do love that you, you've you put, for example, rat swarm, furry things, bat swarm, flappy yep. things, spider swarm, scuttly <laughs> things, frog swarm, slimy things, bee swarm, stingy things, serpent swarms, wriggly things. Um, yep. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's fun. It's And I think yeah, that, anything I, like that. <laughs> I, I, I feel like that throughout the rule system, um, throughout the book, interspersed throughout the rules you've you've put in sort of that that rick flair of so someone could have an axe um if they're an orc they could have a really big axe or they could have a giant honking axe i forget the exact terminology but it's you know it's the, yeah oh which axe is it oh it's the extremely you know the extremely large bonking axe yeah. that one yeah i had to i had to clean up some of my language when i decided to print it <laughs> did you <laughs> some of the references to how big the axe were got quite brutal <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, I'm, so we've talked about bases. We've talked about um, what kind of models we can include, but we really haven't talked about scale. Now, you have said several times that this is sort of a um, warband-esque game, but it's not a skirmish game um, because each unit um, in the game itself, as you say, infantry is sort of the, the it's where this game lives, uh, and a bit like Bolt Action and Gates. Um, and in those yeah. games... Well, unlike those games, you have usually between five and ten models per squad, uh, so to speak, per unit. Um, and then each one of those units gets an order dice. Now, you, there's a maximum size. You can't have more than ten models in a squad. So it's not like you're going to pull um, what some games do and you're like, well, you need to have 40 goblins in this unit. Nope. Maximum ten. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that that process? Why Why did you cap it like that? Um, because it really does make for an interesting dynamic battlefield because you have lots of little units running around. Yeah, uh, that, you know, that's really something that's been inherited from the Bolt Action and Antari systems. Mm. And um, it, because it's a dice draw system, so every unit has a dice in the bag. Mm-hmm. And obviously you work your way through the bag until both sides, all the dice have gone through. It's exactly like bolt action. If, anyone, if anyone's familiar with bolt action, they'll be familiar with that process. Mm. Well, as you know, a complete turn means you have to work your way through all the dice. Mm-hmm. So the size of game tends to be naturally suggested by that. If you've got 100 dice per side, you're never going to get the game played. No. If you're you've never going to get through a turn. Dice, yeah. You're never going to get through a turn. It would be mad, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so really, a typical game has to be something like 12 elements, 12 dice. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the number of dice that's get, that uh, Warlords sell in a pack. Conveniently. Uh, can be fewer. 
Yeah, convenient. I mean, that's why. It's because that's exactly. sort of like the typical, or you don't want to say typical big game, but um, you can go up to about you can go up to about twenty twenty dice aside with uh, without it breaking. Mm-hmm. But more than that, the game starts to slow down naturally. So that so that's fixture size. Um, and because I wanted it to play fairly quickly, really, I, I would go fewer than that. I would tend to think in terms of six to twelve. Mm-hmm. But it depends what army you've got. You know, if you've got goblins, you tend to have more units than if you've got. Your, your high-end elves or chaos warriors mm-hmm. so you need a variation but um, that's the sort of scope of the game um, with um, both Antares and uh, Bolt Action your models have um, a, uh, a kind of gap distance you've got to be within an inch of another model that's right well what that does it creates a footprint for a unit uh, and um, if your models are all based up like in Warhammer uh, then your footprint is determined by the total number of models in the unit uh, and their formation. Right. It's something like um, uh, Antares or uh, uh, Erewhon. The footprint is a lot bigger because you've got the gaps. Exactly. So, you, you, so a unit of five actually occupies quite a, a good a good size area, and you, it it has a natural dynamic on the tabletop and if you've got a six foot tabletop you don't want a unit that covers three feet of space no you don't that's just silly yeah uh so uh so 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 you really you're looking at five models is a reasonable size 10 is quite big actually 10 is quite big um i know i allowed them up to 10 for infantry but i always think of that as a bit as a bit on the maximum size Mm -hmm. and because it Obviously, the number of dice in the bag is the number of units. So if you have two units of five, you've got two dice in the bag, and therefore twice the chance of drawing a dice mm-hmm. than if you've got a unit of ten and one dice in the bag. Um, two units of five can also, if they've got missile weapons, they can shoot twice, and therefore they can hit two different units or one unit twice and impose more pins because mm-hmm. hitting with missiles causes pins. A single unit of ten still can only cause one pin because it's only one unit. So that's right. there's a there's a dynamic that suggests the size. Uh, and, and five to ten is about the range. More than that, the units start to become too big. You can actually um, increase the size of an undead unit, theoretically. Uh, so a unit of skeletons by um, casting a spell upon it to uh, summon more undead. Right. But even so, the maximum you can build it to is 14 mm-hmm. and you'd have to be very lucky and the most powerful wizard in the game to do it <laughs> so it, i don't fret about that right and I, you can tell there's some people out there who are gonna you know immediately like you know what i'm gonna go do i'm gonna go prove rick wrong and i'm gonna get a bigger unit than 10 look at me go yeah but uh they did. You know, they, it, yeah somebody's already already posted on, on on facebook a couple of times about it and i said yeah yeah well that's that's fine you know yeah if you're casting this particular spell successfully which is not always easy no it's not uh, on a unit of that particular size i.e it's maximum that you can cast a cast upon which is five mm-hmm. and you're a level three wizard so you get your plus three bonus and you roll a six yeah. you can build it up to uh, uh 14 yeah good luck <laughs> yeah exactly good luck with that when the planets align and you know the moon's just right have have fun with that yeah. uh we'll be over here yeah, playing no, no, the I game. don't mind that I mean, I mean, that will happen occasionally, and yeah. you'll have a unit of 14, and people go, oh, my God, there's a unit of 14. What can I do with it? Well, you, you stay away from it <laughs> exactly. until you've knocked it down a bit. Because uh, in combat, everything fights. So um, mm-hmm. 
all 14 will fight. And when you shoot, assuming all 14 have got line of sight, they will all shoot. So 14 shooting or fighting is quite a big deal. Um, uh, and there is, there is an advantage to having big units, but at the same time, there's a disadvantage too. You yeah. can kill a big unit in one go if you manage to get a pin. Causing pins on things up to a certain – a pin is like a, a morale tracker. Mm-hmm. And once you've got your uh, pins up to a level where um, they equal your, um, your, your, your command stat, you destroy a unit. So you can incrementally destroy any unit just by building its uh, com- uh, pins on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you usually can do by shooting at it, or you can do by fighting it in combat. Exactly, it, it, fighting in combat is the fastest way, but you can also do with magic. You know, so there are ways uh, of doing it. Some special abilities cause extra pins. Um, so, you know, there are ways and means. Definitely. Well, let's talk. So we've talked unit sizes. Let's talk a little bit about um, maybe some of the ways and means. So, if we are talking about the basic. You've mentioned that each unit gets an order dice. Um, now, those are the same order dice that appear in other Warlord games like Bolt Action and Gates of Antares. So you have the yep. six sides. There's, there is, of course, fire. Yep, fire is, fire is shoot without moving. Right. Um, and with some weapons, some weapons are move or fire. Um, with that, that is just basically the only way you can get to fire. But it, the fire order actually does something interesting if um, you have a weapon that isn't move or fire, because it basically means you've stood and aimed. So you actually get a plus modifier to your hit, which is a really nice inclusion to the game. Yeah, you, if you give something a fire order, that means you're going to maximize your shooting, so you get a plus one to hit, plus one to your accuracy bonus. Um, and as you say, some weapons you can only shoot that way. I think crossbows you can only shoot that way, for That's example. Right. And that, which is fairly traditional, isn't it? I've not done anything too radical with the rules. Mm. I think anyone who plays fantasy um, games or has played Warhammer in the past will be familiar with uh, a lot of the way these things work. Right. Mm. But then you have um, advance in case you want to move and shoot. Um, or yeah. just move a short distance or move through difficult terrain, for example. Yeah, advance is that move and shoot, but you don't move as fast as you as you possibly could and you don't shoot as well as you possibly could. So it's a, a sort of compromise move. It's actually the one that is most useful for a, a standard missile unit um, because it gives you an opportunity to get within range of, the, of a target mm-hmm. and shoot at it. Um, so uh, advance is your, is your sort of stand, standard move, really. It is. And then, of course, there's the fast move, which is run. Now, for those of you who are used to bolt action, you would say, oh, move, sorry, run means move twice. Um, Well, that's kind of the case in Erewhon. Rick, can you explain there's an extra bonus move you can do? Yeah, if you you give a unit a run order, you can move up to a double move without any problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you can also move a triple move called a sprint. And you have to declare you're doing it, you move the triple move, and then once you've finished your move, you take an exhaustion test, uh, which is just a, a test against your agility value, which tends to typically be five for mm-hmm. humans. Um, if you pass that test, and that's 50-50 because it's five on a d10, then uh, all is well. If you fail that test, then you take a pin, so a, 
And as I say, a pin is like a morale tracker. Um, for every pin on the unit, it, it actually uh, starts to uh, make it more difficult to move in your following turns because uh, every time you – I think this is exactly as in the uh, bolt action, in fact. Every time you uh, give a unit an order, if it's got pins on, the pins become a, uh, a minus uh, modifier onto the uh, command value. That's right. Yeah. And um, as you pointed out, they are that is how you kill units in this game. And we'll come back to that when Can't we get do. to combat because um, rather than, and this is important, kids, so I hope you're listening, um, because this is one of the big takeaways I got from the game that I played that I didn't realize before I played, is combat isn't resolved by how many guys you killed. Combat's resolved by pins. So pay attention to the pins. They matter a lot. Um, and we'll come back to that. But... Let's talk yep. about how to get rid of pins, uh, Rick. So we have rally. Yeah, rally is just um, uh, do nothing but uh, pull yourselves together, guys. You it, uh, you basically remove pins if you give it a rally order. A rally a rally order is um, uh, different to other orders insofar as you don't take account of the pins when you give the order. Right. Uh, but uh, so so it's easier to rally than it is. Uh, uh, to, to do anything else once you've got pins but all the rally does is removes pins it does and it's but usually yeah it, it's it does just like in bolt action version 2 um what a rally order does is if you pass it you get to take away d6 plus one pins and of course you test on your basic morale uh, uh, leadership uh, not leadership what is um the tr it's command command yeah. thank you uh the command yeah. value in this game um, but it also does something else, which it doesn't do in other game systems, Rick. Um, if someone's fleeing near you, um, if you rally, yep. it is a way to actually try and turn those units around. Yeah, that's right. If, uh, if you give a rally order to a unit and there's another unit in route nearby, then that unit can also try and rally. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it's particularly useful for um, uh, your high-level commanders who've got uh, you know, good command values, which means they rally easily. You can give a rally order to a unit specifically, even if it hasn't got any pins on it, mm -hmm. specifically to try and rally an, uh, a nearby uh, routing unit. Yeah, you can also uh, you can imagine those sort of long bearded dwarves grumbling at the younglings running by them, saying, "Hey, why are you running away? Yeah. Come back here! What are you steady doing? On. Yeah, steady, steady on, steady <laughs> on." Um, and, and again, it's, it just adds that wonderful narrative feel to the game. Um, if we're going to continue down that road, if someone is struggling, um, perhaps they have failed that test, then they have gone down. Um, now, if they go down. Um, that is very much kind of what we've expect from like bolt action and gates, but to get out of down is actually kind of, well, it's, it's not kind of, it is different because unlike in bolt action and gates, you have to test to get rid of a down order, don't you? Yeah, if you've got a down order at the end of the turn, it doesn't automatically go back into the, um, uh, into the bag. You, um you have to make a test to, to remove the down order. And if you fail, the down stays on. Um, the thing I would say, and this is true of all the orders, is when you give an order to a unit, you remove a pin. Even if you fail to give an order to a unit, you right. remove a pin. So, uh, And that's true with the down order as well. So at the end of the turn, you try and recover your down order. Uh, even if you fail, you do remove a pin. So a unit that's down can gradually get better exactly. <laughs> sometimes. Even, even if you don't get it back straight away it's not doomed to be down for the entire game you, you, your, your chance of uh, getting back is uh, it does improve 
which as it slowly pulls together exactly yeah. which if you've played enough first edition bolt action you know that occasionally a unit will just be pinned out and will spend the rest of the game sitting there hiding never doing anything because they can't shed a single pin whereas yeah. in this game even if you fail you're still shedding some of those pins um, yeah you do huge. and if you yeah and particularly the down order because you you, you get the pin uh, when you make the recovery test at the end of the uh, uh, the turn as well as the uh, when you actually give the order so it does actually going down is one of the doesn't actually enable you to uh, get back up again if you see what i mean exactly. a little bit more, uh, more easily it's uh, it's not that bad no well, that takes us to our last order. And of all the orders, if you are like me and you're a big bolt action fan, here's here's the one that's probably the most different, and that's ambush. Um, now, if you're used to me, sorry, used to bolt action um, like I am, you would be used to um, ambushes being sort of a, I'm going to put an and, ambush dice down, and then if someone comes by, I'm going to shoot at them. Now, that's great for a World War II or a science fiction shooty game where everyone's packing a rifle, submachine gun, howitzer, some sort of cannon, laser, whatever. This is fantasy. We got a lot of guys running around with axes. We have swords. We have pikes. We have bows and arrows. The traditional ambush order may not have worked the same way, but what I think this dice really means is, and you can talk to us about that, is um, react. Yeah, it's like an in, or an interrupt. Mm. It's um, I've used it as an interrupt. I was stuck with the dice that I had, so I've had mm-hmm. to call it an ambush order. Um, but really what it is is a... Um, uh, it's like an interrupt or a reaction order. So the the basic idea is if if you um, if you give a unit an ambush order, then it's prepared to interrupt another unit's move. So if an enemy unit basically is given an order within twenty inches of you, mm-hmm. you can interrupt the sequence and go. No, I'm going to go first. And that's so really you've, by giving an ambush order, you're delaying your making your, uh, your your action until you want to. Mm. So it's, it's a way of just waiting for the enemy to get close or for um, uh, uh, to, to, to perhaps uh, interrupt an enemy charge or move against a friend, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, if you put a, a unit on, imagine you've got a unit uh, of archers mm-hmm. on ambush next to a unit of um, infantry uh, uh, or, or something quite vulnerable, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh if the if an enemy cavalry unit charges the unit of infantry, your archers could potentially interrupt and go. We're going to shoot at them as they come in. Right. So you get kind of a bit of a you know uh, uh, of support from your your friend before the uh, before the combat. Or you could do it the other way round, in which case the archers get charged by the enemy, mm-hmm. but your infantry by them go, right, no, we're going to interrupt. We're going to attack those uh, cavalry and head them off before they get to my mm-hmm. in, uh, uh, my archers. So you can use it like that. It's really just um, – it really is just an interrupt move um, yeah. or uh, what would you call it? I have to call it ambush. It's, it, it, it's not literally an ambush, but it, it's, um, it's a delayed move really. It is, but it adds a nice layer of – tactical, 
you just, I mean, you have to think ahead in the game. Um, and in the one game that I've played so far of Erewhon, um, that, that situation literally happened. My barbarian horsemen were charging um, the dwarven handgunners that were hiding behind a wall. I, I was saying, they, they keep pinning me. I need to get rid of them. Um, my fast horsemen ran up. And right as I was about to get there, um, there was a unit of dwarf warriors that said, nope. We have an ambush order. They passed their reaction test. They were able to, you know, cut me off at the pass. And there was a fierce combat right in front of the wall where the handgunners just stood there and went, thank God that's not us. Um, and my horsemen <laughs> yes. got beaten off, um, you know, driven off by the, the, the miniature tanks and armor um, who were literally designed by my opponent to be the ones to stop the horsemen. And they got in the way. Um, and you know, had I known that that was a mechanic in the game that and how it exactly worked before, because we were still working out the rules, um, I probably would have done that slightly differently. But I now know that that's a thing. And by making sure that, you know, you have to second guess what your opponent's going to do. And you might, you know, he may have just wasted that turn by putting them there. But by sure. doing so, it protected the... It was just a really nice way of managing units to make sure that you were able to counter your opponent's movements. Yeah, uh, and, and it also... It, that's like real life, isn't it? it mm. You can imagine it happening. Uh, and I think that's um, that's what I like about that kind of system. It, uh, it just gives you an instant little story, an instant narrative. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine that happening just like that. Uh, so yeah, I was quite pleased with it. I had to do something with the ambush order because it's on the dice. Right, exactly. <laughs> I couldn't ignore it altogether. Um, but as you say, I, I didn't want to just use the bolt action or um, and even the Antares. Antares has some more variation on it, but it, it's still essentially the same. Mm. Um, uh, but I thought it was too complex. I thought the uh, it was it was much simpler to have just a basic interrupt based on distance. Uh, in a uh, uh, in this kind of game, and I think it actually has run quite well. Okay. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, let's let's talk what happens when you actually get into combat in this in that situation where my horsemen ran into the dwarven warriors who are waiting for them. Um, I guess before that, we should probably talk shooting. So, as I said, the the dwarven uh, riflemen were shooting at my advancing barbarian hordes, and in this game, when you shoot. Um, you roll against your accuracy to see if you're able to hit. Um, and then you apply the strength of the weapon modifier to um, the opponent's uh, damage modifier and their resistance. And then you see if they you know, fail their test and if they're removed or if they take a wound. Um, yeah. So if you are used to the bolt action system of rolling to hit and then rolling to wound... Um, this feels similar in that you're rolling to certain numbers, except in this game, you're trying to roll under your value and it's a D 10 system. So it, it takes a second to figure out, but once you get it, it is very intuitive. You're just, it feels very similar. Yeah. You know, I've been, I've been playing with that kind of system now for so long that I, I sometimes forget that it can be, a, it can throw people because you, um, uh, you perhaps instinctively want to see a high number being a good result, mm -hmm. um, but what it is is it's really a it's really a crude percentage system. Mm. So, you know, if you're rolling against a six, a score of one to six is a pass, sixty percent. Exactly. If you a two is one or two is successful, 
20 percent mm-hmm. and, and it's really as i say a crude percentage system um but um it, uh, it, it once you've once you've got your head around that it just means that any stat that you look at oh there's got a stat of seven mm-hmm. the higher the stat value the better so you're not playing any kind of tricks where you're adding dice scores together to get a magic number or right. something like that, which, you know, are systems that work. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're just looking at a number. It's a seven. Great. I've got a 70% chance to hit. I need to roll one to seven. And it's really not a, uh, not, not a problem. The other thing is that any modifiers, positive modifiers are a good thing. So plus one to hit takes my seven to an eight. Mm-hmm. One to eight successful, eighty percent chance. Exactly. So you're not doing anything where that you're having to create minors, minors modifiers that are good. If you see what I mean, yes. which is counterintuitive. <laughs> it is counterintuitive, and you're trying to explain new people games. Sometimes doing those little math math switcheroos can really confuse yeah. new players. Whereas this is very straightforward, and it is very easy to pick up. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and one and just remember, ones are great, tens are bad. <laughs> exactly, and a one always ha- always hits or passes whatever your test what you're testing, and ten always yep. fails. Yeah, they, I've, I've I've bookended it with ones and tens, so ones always succeed, tens always fail, regardless of any modifiers or rules that apply. Okay. So uh, you you can't go beyond. But what that means is that um, things like your dragons. Uh, and your big monsters, they start to get to a point whereby you go, well, I've rolled, you know, I've rolled a one, you've rolled a ten, they're in trouble. Um, and because of that, I, I, I created a chart. Some things have wounds, so mm-hmm. you know you, they can take, they can die more than once if you if you like. Uh, but things like monsters, I, I created a chart. So rather than being dead when they fail a uh, resist test, resist being the, 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 the your, your equivalent of toughness in Warhammer. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, they go to a chart and they have a, a series of results which can be either devastating or they can be fairly trivial depending on how lucky you get. So in a way that definitely reflects maybe the vehicle damage charts that we might know and love from bolt action. Yeah, exactly. It's the same principle. But it's with the same 10, idea. ten variations within because you're using a D10, not a D6. Yeah, um, I think I can't remember how many variations I did. So, some of them are multiplied, uh, mm, multiply up. Right. I think, and they've got a bit of a range, uh, so you're more likely to get um, certain results. Uh, but um, but I thought it was a, a way of um, way of doing it. Mm. Yeah, so it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, seven different results. In exactly. fact, more yeah. than six is what I was. Yeah, I was like, yes. definitely more than six. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, okay, so in shooting, when you hit and you've wounded someone, or not even if you've wounded, as long as you've hit, just like in bolt action and in Gates of Antares, you can do you do a pin to somebody. Um, regardless of whether or not you hurt them, they see the arrow flying at them, they duck, maybe it wavers them a little bit, so they take that pin. Um, yeah. And once you get, but then, so uh, I guess what I'm saying is it's very similar to systems we know. Um, once we get to combat, things get a little different. Very similar still, but a little different. In bolt action, um, you don't roll to hit. Once you're in combat, all you do is you roll to wound, and the person who inflicts the most damages wins, and winner takes all, they wipe out their opponent. You know, there's some special rules in there that occasionally play in, but that's generally how it works. In, in, war, in Warlords, the way it works is right before the hand-to-hand actually works, if you have someone who has... Um, you know, spears or some sort of thrown weapon, they get a chance to actually attack 
first. Um, and those that is actually a shooting attack. So you can actually cause pins by shooting in hand to hand before hand to hand even works. Yeah, and if you're if you're on with something like a a, a bow, uh, assuming you've been charged because you, you you can't actually you can't actually shoot that bow if you're charging. Mm, that's right. Um, uh, if you uh, if you're charged, then that's a that's how you you essentially that's a stand and fire. You know you you mm-hmm. you are uh, shooting as the uh, as the guys come in, hoping to hopefully drop one one or two of them. Mm-hmm. But even if you just cause hits you can inflict a pin on that unit. Um, and when it comes to deciding the close combat results, that pin will count. It definitely does. Uh, from personal experience, it absolutely does. Um, now, yeah. then, unlike in bolt action, you then, just like in shooting, you roll to hit. And then um, against your strength value, um, which isn't necessarily how strong you are, but it's your sort of physical combat characteristic. And then again, you test against their resistance. Um, now, there are weapons that give you strength bonuses, which makes it easier for you to strike. And then there are weapons that um, cause your opponent to have lower resistance. And it, depending on the size and the type of weapon, you really are sort of juggling, well, do I want this unit to have this you know, do I want it to be able to be to strike more often or do I want it to be able to reduce my opponent's armor more often? Um, and those are the considerations that you kind of need to get into when you're buying a unit in the list listing phase. Right. Yeah, that's right. I, uh, but it's not it's not really beyond the um, uh, what I consider to be normal. So if you're on with something like a, a, a hand weapon, a sword. Mm hmm. You generally get a bonus onto your uh, strength, which means you hit, you're more likely to hit mm-hmm. because it's very handy, very handy weapon to have. That's right. And you get a, a small bonus onto your strike value, so you're you're taking the opponent's um, uh, resist value, which includes his armor, uh, down by one. So a sword is actually a very good thing. It's a sword or an axe or a mace, you know, something a hand weapon, is a very good thing to have in this game. Uh, the only disadvantage is you can't throw it before you um, go into combat. Right. So often something like a spear is very handy because you can throw a spear as you charge in. That's right. Uh, and uh, you, you get um, uh, you get sort of the, the advantage of of, uh, uh, of potentially causing hits before the combat starts. That's right. Um, mm. But the spear doesn't yeah. give you the bonus to help cut through, you know, maybe heavily armed dwarves, for example, or yeah, armored well, dwarves. Could... If you if you're going to go and fight heavily armed dwarves or something with a really big resist value, you really need some. Ideally, you want a weapon that's got a strike value bonus of something like two, mm-hmm. i.e., it's going to reduce the opponent's uh, res down by two. Um, and that's uh, which means a very big sword or an enormous sword or uh, yes. <laughs> things like things like that. Improbably <laughs> large those. weapons, yes. Yeah, improbably large weapons. Um, yeah, uh, and, and some of the monstrous attacks are also in those, that category. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But without getting into um, the nitty-gritty of each weapon, um, I did want to express to our listeners that there is a nice variety of weapons, and each one has a purpose. Um, and so you really, there is a lot of thought that you can put into listing and tactics around how you use those weapons um, that I think really adds a nice depth to the listing process um of the game so yeah it, it's it's very finely layered it's 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 very nice yeah uh, well i think when the, the core system gives you that kind of flexibility 
Um, so it's one of the things that attracted me to it. It was uh, it was set up to be um, quite a uh, uh, to have that sort of variation. Um, so I, I just ported it over from Antares, really. Uh, yeah. And once we've done the rolling to hit and the rolling to wounds um, in hand to hand combat, for every failed, um, sorry, not rolling to hit, rolling to wound, rolling to wound, and then the person taking their sort of their armor test, if they fail that test, um, they lose the model as a casualty and they take a pin per casualty. So that is really what Rick was talking about earlier um, when you said something like, um, close combat is how you really accrue pins. Um, would you like to talk more yeah, about that's that? Right. Yeah, no, I think you've summarized it quite uh, thoroughly there, uh, Brad. The, um, I mean, basically, you you both both sides fight, and then you take a uh, an extra pin per casualty suffered. Mm-hmm. Um, you also take a pin if you've taken a wound, incidentally, which I, I forgot to mention, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I need to do, include that. Um, so you'll end you'll end up with a situation where why you one unit's got more pins than the other, or, uh, probably. Mm-hmm. In which case, the units that's got the most pins has been defeated. Now, what that can mean is if you've actually got a unit that's stood on its own and it's got lots of pins, I say it's badly demoralised. It's been hit by perhaps magical missiles or maybe it's fought in combat before, mm-hmm. and it's a bit shaky. It's basically shaken. These guys don't want to be there. If you charge into them with something you're probably going to route them. It doesn't matter that you don't cause huge numbers of casualties on them. They've already got lots of pins. They're already very weak. They're ready to go. So the way of getting, uh, you know, you can get rid of quite a powerful unit with quite a weak unit, so long as it's already very heavily pinned. That's right. You know, it's morale. Effectively, its morale has been broken. It's weak. It's ready to break. That's right. Yeah. And if mm. and so when you win combat, the loser tests on their morale, um, and of course they use their pins as part of that. But if you fail, you take additional pins, and that might be you running or not. Yeah, basically, what if you if you fail a break test uh, after combat, which is just taking on your command value minus the pins, mm-hmm. uh, then you immediately get an extra d6 pins. And uh, that can usually, uh, often, in fact, takes you over your uh, the limit of the number of pins you're allowed to take, which means you're automatically destroyed. Um, if if you're not destroyed, then you are routed and you run, you, and you 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 basically given a run order, and you uh, uh, will then at the beginning of every move, uh, every turn, you will make an immediate run order towards your own baseline and try and get away. That's right. And you can't and you can't do anything else. No, that's it. Yeah. But that's why you have the rally order before, whereas exactly. if people are running, um, you can try and keep your own models from going off the board. And that's actually really important because unlike in games like Bolt Action, you have a breaking point. You can break your opponent's army, and in doing so, you can actually end the game early. Even though it's a narrative game, and even though you're playing scenarios, um, you can end a scenario early if you're able to inflict enough damage to your opponent's army. Now, when I first read that, my initial reaction, I'll I'll admit, Rick, was uh, I don't know if I like that because it tells me that if I make the teeth-kicking-inest list possible, I can force my opponent to end the game early, um, and that might lead to some feel-badsies. Having played the game, though, units are incredibly resilient, 
And there's a lot of interaction with the, the pins and the rallying and how you gain pins and then are able to shed them off that you getting rid of units is a lot harder than it is in bolt action anyway. And so you need to really work at that to make that happen. Um, and in a 1000 point game, um, I don't know how feasible or regularly that's going to happen. Is that from your play testing? Is that sort of the sense you've had as well? Uh, yeah, uh, we, we normally play to about six turns, but um, mm. uh, I, I reckon five or six turns in, you, 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 you're getting to a position where you're starting to one side to be reached hot. It's usually half number uh, mm-hmm. uh, will break. But if you've got a vulnerable unit, let's say a unit that's been reduced to just one figure, if, if you keep it out, the, you just retire it and keep it at the back. It's very hard for the enemy to to actually mm-hmm. destroy that unit. So yeah, you you, you don't. It, it's not easy to destroy a, a, a unit quickly, a, a force quickly by um, taking it to its break. That that half level, it's half unit. Uh, more than half units are gone, and end game. That really is a default. There's there's no there's no absolute requirement to play that, mm. um, uh, and you can actually end a game at any time you like. If you both players think it's a good idea to, or you can just play it on if you want. The um, uh, I, I just wanted it to have a a definitive way of winning uh, that doesn't mean a game goes on forever. If you see what I mean. Absolutely, but again, yeah. I don't think it's one of those things that you can necessarily tailor a list for, um, which was I was initially afraid of. I think you've done a very good job of writing that in, but by the same token, preventing people from abusing it. I think it's again. That's it goes back to this. I've been playing the system a long time now, mm-hmm. um, in in the form of Antares as well as uh, you know what I've done with the fantasy. So I've got a a very uh, a fairly natural handle on how these things, how the balance works, and everything. Yeah, uh, yeah. and things which work, especially mm-hmm. Antares, we've kind of carried it. It's a bit like um, uh, genetic evolution. You know, things that are mm-hmm. successful continue. That's <laughs> and right. That's what we've done. Yeah, things are less successful fall by the wayside. And they become extinct, and they disappear from the rule set. Yeah, Um, that's it. Well, okay, as we said, um, there are scenarios in this game, and the game comes with seven of them. Um, Everything from your standard um, lineup across from one another and hit each other in the face, um, which, you know, is the old fan favorite, and for years was the only thing people played in Fantasy Battle, to, um, you know, cap pillaging a village capturing a watchtower which is an old romantic favorite um capturing a sacred relic finding the relic and getting it off the board fighting the rogue beast um having a giant monster running around um unexpected uh, encounters where one side's trying to get away from another one there are really fascinating scenarios to you know, put your war bands down and play through um, that is above your bog standard punch each other in the face battle. Um, yeah, I, 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 uh, I did feel very strongly about that. I mean, because it's a warband game rather than a, a battle game, it does lend itself to those kind of narrative scenarios or the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have the everyone lines up and has a fight. You just have to have that yeah, you because um, you, yeah, you, you couldn't get away with it. Um, and I've done some variations on that whereby everyone turns up and has a fight, but some people can sneak in around the sides or come on later. That's right. And that's that's all fairly predictable. Um, but the um, 
Uh, the one I really enjoyed playing the most was uh, the one I called the Sacred Relic, where basically two players start off um, on adjacent sides of the table and they have to reach a point um, equally distant from both, um, uh, capture the Sacred Relic and then get back to their own side. Uh, and that's a really fun game because uh, you actually have to play that tactically. You have to go, right, I'm going to send some troops off to get the relic, but I might send some others off to go and sneak around and stop my enemy guy mm-hmm. getting to the relic or getting back to his uh, table edge. So if you if you put everything into going to fetch the relic, the enemy player can just sneak around the back, get between you and your baseline, and stop you getting back again. That's right. So, you know, it, it's it's quite a nice... It's a nice little scenario, that. and it, I've used that... Um, as my go-to scenario when I'm demoing the game. That's a good uh, one. It, it's, it's a bit like Capture the Flag. Yeah, it is. It's a Capture the Flag game, and mm-hmm. you know you have to get to the place and get back again. It's it, it's not, um, but I call it Capturing the Rally, but it can be anything. You know, make a variation of it. Um, yeah, so, mm-hmm. it's, so it's all good fun, but I, I do enjoy that sort of thing, and, I, and I, as I say, I, I do see it as a game that lends itself to um, telling stories and adventures. Mm-hmm. Although I do accept that um, many, if not most people, will want to line up and just have a fight. <laughs> yeah, it, is the, it is a tabletop war game. You know, it's what we do. It is. Yeah, he says yeah, right. It's human nature. Exactly. <laughs> well, I, I, I think we can't really call it a, a day until we've talked about several more factors. One being sort of the elephant in the room. The thing that has been added to this rule system that was not in Gates and was not in Bolt Action is magic. Um, now I know oh, yeah, yeah. some some games have um, very powerful magic faces, which can delete entire units and make you know fans um, scream in rage and joy at the same time. Um, I think this is a more balanced system. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about it? Uh, yeah, I mean the spells on the whole are meant to interact with the uh, the game. So the, uh, there's a basic fireball spell for those of us who just like to pop away with a bit yes. of artillery. But it, 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 and I use that a lot, but it's it's not a huge amount. The wizards only get one spell. You can add additional spells with additional points, but they only come with one spell. Um, although it can be any of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, there's a certain a limit. Um, and most of the spells do things like they take um, they, they take pins off units so they can help help rally, for example, or, or help to uh, uh, get units back into fighting shape. Or they add pins to units to weaken them so someone else can kill them. Um, there's a wake the dead spell for necromancers so they can just bring up more skeletons to uh, reinforce their units mm-hmm. once they get to, to a certain size. Um, and then there are... Um, sort of shields that stop other people either shooting you or um, uh, casting magic upon you um, and so on so you know they're, they're mostly they're mostly things that help you to achieve something with your other troops they're not necessarily battle winning things in themselves yeah. um, stuff like that I think you mentioned uh, when we were chatting earlier that um, you managed to uh, Cast uh, have a spell cast upon you, where um, your 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 unit was suddenly removed to the uh, other end of the table. Yes, it was. I was not expecting yeah. that. Yeah, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's uh, just uh, annoying, but not necessarily a battle winning. Although could, that could actually be battle winning in some situations. It could. The other thing with uh, with magic is I, I, you use a d10 to cast it, and every spell has its own casting value, and they're fairly easy to cast. They are. Um, uh, but whatever number you've rolled to cast it, 
becomes the number the other guy has to beat to dispel it. Exactly. So if if you've rolled, yeah, okay, you might need nine or less to cast a a very uh, modest spell. But if you've rolled an eight, that means you can be dispelled by rolling a, a eight or less. Mm-hmm. So unless you get very lucky and manage to cast your spell on a one, which it's impossible to beat, mm-hmm. you can't get a better score than a one, um, you're, you're always uh, in danger of being dispelled. And um, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll find as many spells as you cast, you will have dispelled. Just like so It's just the way it works. Um, and again, that was deliberate. So you can't count on magic. It's a little bit tricksy. That's right. You see, which means you can't really build a strategy around it. No. Um, the closest is your necromancers who have little choice but to try and build a strategy around it. That's right. um, but even then, <laughs> even then, it's uh, it's a bit risky. That's true. Hmm. Well, another sort of trope of fantasy um, gaming that you, I, I don't think you could ignore um, was magic items. Um, magic items, yep. magic armor, um, you know, sorry, magic missile weapons, all of the things that we sort of know and expect of the lady in the lake has handed you the magic sword. Um, and now you yeah. have, uh, you know, your own government. But, um, but you also, <laughs> there's other... Um, there are other weapons as well. Now you do give us some magic weapons, both shooting and hand to hand weapons, but they are very generic and there's only a few of them. And that's just, if you really want to pimp out your existing heroes um, with, you know, something a little, a little something special, but I really like how that system gives you the option to do so, but definitely doesn't allow you to create some, you know, monster that is going to plow through an entire unit either. Um, yeah, yeah. It it keeps uh, it keeps the stats, uh, the stat bonuses within the um, uh, kind of limits that I, I set for the game system. Mm-hmm. It, it's one of the great things about designing a game that you want to play, rather than designing a game to pimp a range of miniatures that you've mm-hmm. got no choice. So this model here has got such and such, and the last one had such and such, so we have to make him better than so-and-so, mm-hmm. so he has to have a plus 10 million magic sword. And the enemy run away at the mere sight of him. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. And that happened with Warhammer, and people, in one phase, think people refer to it as Hero Hammer. Yes. Uh, for that very reason. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that that's a commercial consideration. Well, I'm not driven by any commercial considerations for when, as I say, when I was going to originally, I was going to release this um, as a as a freebie, or um, or it'll publish it myself. So um, I've I've not created a game around a commercial um, set of uh, models or anything. Um, you know, you can use any models from it from any manufacturers. So I was under no um, no pressure to create magic items and pimp up um, heroes and things. Mm-hmm. So I, I just kept it fairly straight and i think it works a lot better it does yeah well i really like um i mean bolt action in general is a fairly balanced game it 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 works very well um very rarely do you find one is you know one army has no chance of winning against another um certain national rules may be more advantageous and combinations but you can win um it's not like maybe some other games uh, maybe some other fantasy games these days where there are some army lists that are seem deemed so good that they're almost impossible to beat. Um what I like about this game if I can draw a giant underline under what you just pointed out is that it's balanced. It isn't the constant you don't get codex creep. 
that that terminology where the new thing is the hotness and it it beats the previous things because the 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 company needs to sell it. This is a game where everything is balanced. You can have a fun game with your mate and you're both pretty well in the same ballpark. Um, and I think that really makes this special um, because that is something that's often very rare in modern war gaming. Yeah, well, I hope it, I hope that's the case. And um, mm. uh, I, there's a lot of inherent balance in the mechanics. Um, and, and one of the things I'm fairly aware of is just where you can push the stats limits uh, and things like that. Uh, and I think in, in the case of um, Erewhon, I will be doing more uh, uh, armies and more forces for it. And it's just keeping it within the same sort of um, uh, ballpark that's going to be... Um, I want to say a challenge, but it's going to be important. Well, that brings up another point. Um, I have been asked a num- by a number of people if in this game, uh, different races have national rules and people are drawing parallels between Bolt Action and Erewhon. Um, and they are right to do so in a lot of cases. But in this particular case, um, armies don't have a national rule. The only one that I could think of, for example, is the undead, which has if you kill the general, the army starts to suffer. Um, because, of course, um, it's the magic that's keeping the army going. Um, but you've countered that by um, changing the profiles of um, the different races. Um, goblins are not as strong as orcs. Orcs are stronger than human beings, that sort of thing. Um, and by the interspersal of special rules that are tied specifically to units that you can um Sometimes units come with special rules. Sometimes you pay to upgrade them. So it really allows you to sort of customize your force. Um, but within that, each race has its own sort of character without a national rule. Do you think I'm... Yeah. That? Yeah? Do you agree with that? Yeah. I, I mean, for example, the the elves have the uh, option for the haughty disdain rule. That's right. Uh, which is uh, they automatically pass the first break test, I think. Mm-hmm. And they... Um, uh, uh, but I don't think any other race has that. Right. So it, it kind of defines the character. The dwarves, some of the dwarves have the crazed psychotic rule. Right. Uh, sort of defines what they are. So, so sometimes you have a special rule that only applies to one army because I've only applied it to one army. Right. Um, and as I do more army lists in the future as well, I think the important thing there is not spreading those rules about too much. Um, mm. Because they're characterizing, aren't they? They, they? they make they make elves elves and they make dwarves dwarves. Exactly. But you're also paying for them as well. So if you want a particular unit that isn't haughty, um, you can take that. Um, and it also allows you to... And it also allows you to play a more vanilla version of the game, if you like, a more historically um, a credible version. And we've actually used this rule set to play historical war games as well as fantasy war games mm. using uh, sort of Vikings and Saxons. So if you imagine your Viking and Saxon war bands having the raid upon a monastery, we did that as well. And it, it, you know, it, it all works perfectly well using the stats that are in the, uh, in the uh, book. Nice. Yeah. Well, I guess that takes us to... What's the future, Rick? Um, it sounds like you've been messing around with this with other things as well. Um, are, are we to assume that this is all in one, this is sort of a fire and forget endeavor? Or are we going to see more of the races that you 
that you in the way that you had described it, perhaps as PDFs or as maybe in an army book later, are, are we going to get more to this? Is is Erewhon going to continue after this book? Um, yeah, well, you're definitely going to continue in some. Because I, I wanted to do more army uh, uh, lists, more um, more war bands, nice. uh, and uh, uh, I think really, as I was as we were saying earlier, the reason I did the war bands I did is because those are the war bands that we had. Um, but of course, other people have, um, have have said to me, "Oh, we're going to have a war band for this, that, or the other." Um, I don't really want to diversify and do do a more elf war bands, you know, mm. or more dwarf war bands. I mean, I might, but what you end up doing is creating tailored war bands that just happen to fit a particular uh, idea of what those things are. And if people want to do that, that's great. Do it, do it yourself. You know, you don't need me to tell you right. um, uh, how, how those things can work. But um, at the same time, there are a few classic uh, subjects that I didn't include because really no one had the models or we just didn't um, uh, get around to it. Mm-hmm. And those include the, you know, your rat men, Skaven type mm-hmm. models, um, your, um, uh, your amphibian uh, reptile lizard man type mm-hmm. force, uh, which um, in old Warhammer terms you had with the slan uh, and, uh, and lizard men. Is there a fish man joke somewhere in there? Fish man joke. Yeah. I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I do have a, a yeah, we, we used to sell fishmen when when I first joined Games Workshop way back in the nineteen eighties, and I think they were a D and D thing. Mm-hmm. And I had a I had about um, about twenty of these. So uh, uh, I was always uh, I was the chap who had the fishmen. Awesome. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I've just I've started writing it actually. I've just created it as one list. So it's a kind of rep. If anyone thinks, what is the name for things that are reptiles and amphibians? What is the collective name? I, I can't find one. Oh, that's a really good point. Referred, yeah. yeah, there isn't one, I don't think. They're sometimes referred to as herps, after herptologists. Oh, of course, uh, yeah. But it's, but it's a made-up name, really, and herps doesn't sound that great. It sounds a bit like a disease. And uh, uh, so, so I don't know, but I, I've tended to call them um, uh, either lizard men or reptilians just to get the thing down um i've been asked to do a list for um samurai oh hello uh, yeah. yes Ooh. which i know you're very keen on <laughs> yes hello <laughs> you have my attention rick please do tell yes samurai yes yeah yeah which i've uh, pretty much finished and uh, I, I, I i'm not an expert when it comes to samurai but if one of the guys at um, warlord steve um, morgan he, he he he's quite an enthusiast and he knows a thing or two about them um but of course you have to create a fantasy version of so you so yeah, i've been reading upon the uh, mythology and fantasy of uh, of japan and I, it's quite bizarre and uh, non non European, so it it's is. it's a little bit difficult to get your head around sometimes. I mean, uh, you, you know what a ghoul is, and you know what you know, and a zombie is, and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. But when it comes to some of these Japanese monsters, you go, "Well, what is it exactly?" And yeah, it's it's quite tricky. It is. Yeah, we might know what a Kirin well, is. We may know what um, yeah. you know things that are attached to brands that we may be you know used to or even if you've played video games as a kid you might know vaguely what a tanuki is but how you would put that on the tabletop heaven forbid uh yeah well because a few people do make models um, based on those very things um and uh you kind of have to take inspiration from the models Mm -hmm. themselves rather than the uh the the actual historical or mythological or in some cases religious background for these things Mm. um yeah it's it's been good fun i'll um 
yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, seeing what people say about it. I am looking forward to playing it because my samurai <laughs> need to see the tabletop. Well, fantastic. Um, all right, Rick. So it's safe to say that this game has legs and it will continue going after um, this book hits the stands because it has. Um, we have officially, this game has released. Um, this is the first time this podcast has talked about a game before it hasn't come out. Um it is out in the wild. So if you are listening to this, um, head into your local friendly game store and ask about Warlords of Erewhon. Um, that is spelled E-R-E-H-W-O-N. Um, or you can go to Facebook and search for Warlo- Warlords, like the company Warlord of Erewhon. E-R-E-H-W-O-N. Um, I know there have been a few people who have been asking, how do you spell that again? Um, so I thought well, I would it, do that for it's you. It's easy to spell. It, it's nowhere backwards. Uh, oh, is it? it? The, of course. Ah, oh, I didn't know that. I feel so silly now. Yeah. It's it's been staring yeah, me right it, in the it, face. It's again. It's a common trope used for anywhere and everywhere. You know, mm-hmm. a fantasia, a land, land of never, never. You know, it, it's whatever you want it to be. It's your fan. It's the fantasy environment that you want to create, and hence forward to everyone. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. I love it. I love it. Well, Rick, um, I'm sorry to say, and it it actually physically pains me to say this, that our time is uh, about over. Is there anything that we have not expressed about the game that you really want us to talk about? Or do you think we've sort of covered the bases today? I think we've covered everything. I'd just like to say a big thank you to everyone who helped me put it together. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, especially, uh, it, uh, you know, the people helped me play test it and uh, gave me feedback and um, got it to where it is today. And, for, and to Warlord, of course, for publishing it. Yeah. I'm very pleased to see it's actually um, out in the world. Yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing what the community does with it and to see what you say with the community. Um, Because just like Gates, um, you've been an active um, participant in the online community for this game already. Um, I've seen you posting regularly is, and you seem to really enjoy the, the discussion in the community that has sprung up already. Yeah, I keep my uh, I keep my eye on it, and um, uh, it's particularly Facebook. Uh, so that's the only kind of uh, thing I do really. Mm. Um, but it's a very good um, it's a very good media Facebook for um, uh, answering questions and um, just I don't just general discussion. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. So, so I do. Yeah. There you go. Well, all right, Brian. Speaking of, well, Rick, thank you very much for coming on. As always, uh, it is. As I said, a a pleasure talking shop with you, and I look forward to the next time I'm able to do so, and I hope it's sooner rather than later. Um, if Guys, if you're listening to this, I, I have to say um, thank you. Thank you, as always. Podcasts do not cost money, um, but it is your time, and time is precious. And if you are listening to this, we at Warlord uh, and me personally would like to thank you for taking the time to listen to this cast. Um, if you would like to give us feedback, um, you can contact Warlord directly, but the most direct route, the best way to give feedback um, for contents of this show um, is to go to my other podcast page. I do a podcast called Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. And if you type that into Facebook, you will find the Cast Dice page. Um, and if you message it, there is only one person who checks that, and that is me. Uh, and I have gotten quite a lot of feedback for this show from listeners um, who have messaged in requesting, um, most notably recently, a lot of people asking when this episode is coming. So thank you. It is now here. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Um, but for those who um, have suggestions about the future of the Warlord cast um, or, or just want to say nice things, um, please contact 
Um, me personally, I'm Brad at Cast Dice. Um, we always uh, take all of your feedback on board, um, and I pass quite a lot of it on to the Warlord guys um, when it pertains to them and when it pertains to the more technical aspects. Um, I use it to improve the show. So again, thank you for taking the time if you have been one of those people. And if you have not, but you have a bee in your bonnet and you'd like to talk, um, please do send us a message. Um, again, this is the Warlord cast saying thank you very much for listening. Uh, stay tuned in a very future, or sorry, not very future, in the very near future, we will be talking to Brian Cook uh, and the very exciting new Bolt Action Supplement talking about Budapest. So stay tuned, guys. It's going to be an awesome couple of months coming up. Thank you for listening. Good night.